Dr. Nancy Piercy is the author of Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality, as well as The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and Total Truth. She is professor and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. She has been highlighted as one of the top five women apologists by Christianity Today and hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. What I'd like to do before Nancy uh, comes up is I'd love to pray for our evening tonight uh, as we kind of close out the Lord's Day together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity. You have seen fit to bring us all together from various backgrounds, various churches, various geographic regions, all the way from Colorado Springs to, to Fort Collins. I've met people tonight. And so I'm so thankful that so many people are hungry for truth, hungry to know you more, hungry to live out the Christian faith in a more faithful manner. And so I pray that we would be attentive tonight, that your Holy Spirit would be active in, in leading us to, to see your truth, to submit to your truth, and to live out your truth. I pray for Dr. Piercy tonight as she brings us uh, her presentation on Love Thy Body, that, that she would be filled in such a way that uh, we would really be receptive. Um, God, be with us tonight. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Would you please welcome Dr. Nancy Piercy. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, What I want to do tonight is uh, a little bit of a different format I recently had a chance to speak to some high school students, and I decided to keep their attention. I would give my presentation as an interview. Um, I've had a lot of media interviews for, love, well, especially for Lovely Body, for all my books, but um, to, to the point where I practically dream in interview format. <laughs> and so I thought, I'm going to let you... Not literally, of course, but I'm going to have you ask me some questions. And these are the most common questions that I get from real audiences when I do podcasts and media events and so on. So uh, I have 10 questions for you to ask me. (laughs) Um, So are you ready? Here's your first question. Media interviews often start out by asking me, tell us a little bit about how you became a Christian. And I love it when they ask me that because, frankly, the older I get, the more I appreciate my conversion, the more I appreciate the fact that God changed my life so dramatically. And I haven't tested the clicker. Okay. Um, I I was raised in a Lutheran home, um, but it was a a very ethnic home. My dad's Swedish, my mom's Norwegian. Uh, So there wasn't a lot of personal reality in, in their faith. And when I went to high, by the time I reached high school, I was asking, how do we know Christianity is really true? I'm going to a secular high school. All my teachers are secular. All my textbooks are secular. And I just start asking, how do we know Christianity is true? Not anything else. Just, you know, that's a very fundamental question. And the, uh, the adults in my life couldn't answer that. I asked a Christian university professor, why are you a Christian? And he said, works for me. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and I had a chance to talk to a uh, Christian. These were both Lutheran. <laughs> Not that that has anything to do with it. <laughs> Except that Lutherans really didn't have any apologetics back then. So I talked to a Lutheran seminary dean. And all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. As if it were a psychological phase I was going through. So I finally decided that maybe Christianity just didn't have any answers. 
and I very intentionally decided to lay my Christian upbringing aside and embark on a search for truth. I decided, I guess it's just up to me then to find out what's really true. And I began uh, looking at all the religions and philosophies of the world so that I could come to some personal decision about what was really true. Uh, Pretty ambitious for a (laughs) 16-year-old. But I literally started walking down the hallway to the public high school I attended and pulling books off the philosophy shelf because I thought, if I can't get any live people to talk to me, maybe these dead guys, <laughs> these white dead guys, maybe, you know, isn't that the job of philosophy after all? It, to answer questions about what is truth? How do we know it? Is there meaning to life? Is there a foundation for ethics? Or is it just true for me, true for you? And... I pretty rapidly realized that if there is no God, the answer is no, there is no meaning to life. We're, you know, a co- we're a cosmic accident. Life was thrown up out of the mud by random forces. There is no purpose, you know, there's no higher purpose to life. There's no foundation for ethics. I realized there's not even any, there's not even any foundation for knowledge. Because if all I have is my puny brain and the vast scope of time and space... What makes me think I can have some sort of objective, universal truth? Ridiculous. That's how I thought of it. Ridiculous. So I rapidly became a complete relativist and skeptic, and became a completely secular person. It was years later, uh, I was in Europe. I was going to school in Europe. We'd lived there when I was a kid, and so I had gone back. And I stumbled across the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. Um, Francis Schaeffer which is in Switzerland. And how many of you know Francis Schaeffer and his writings? (laughs) Good. A lot of you. (laughs) By the way, these days, younger people don't. I don't don't get many hands uh, with younger people. But so I I stumbled across Labrie, um, and I was stunned. I had no idea Christianity could be supported with good reasons and arguments and evidence um, in fact, I was so I was so impressed that I left. I fled <laughs> because I was afraid I might be drawn in emotionally because it was so appealing, um, and I didn't want to do that. Christianity had already let me down once, and I was not going to I was not going to step back into the Christian world unless I was absolutely intellectually convinced it was true. So. Um, and here's, a, here's an image of the kind of building. There's chalets. Labrie is in a, a group of chalets in a little Swiss village. Chalet sounds like some sort of luxury home, but it's not. It's just how people live in Switzerland. You know? <laughs> Farmers live in chalets. <laughs> so here's the chalet where um, Labrie started. And, of course, you have to get a vision of the, a view of the, the Swiss Alps. Imagine waking up to this every morning. <laughs> I used to say, if the arguments for the existence of God don't persuade you, the sheer beauty will. And actually, I found, I found a photo of myself a couple years ago. I'm the girl with the long blonde hair. I didn't have a photo of myself, but I found this on the internet. Somebody else was there at this. Someone else was there at the same time. So, so this is wonderful. And as you can see, everyone there was hippies <laughs> at the time, which was another reason I was so impressed, <laughs> because back then, hippies were the cool kids. <laughs> um, 
And as you can see, I aspired to be one too. Long hair, granny dresses. <laughs> um, but, but seriously, there were not a lot of Christians reaching across that cultural divide and, and reaching out to these alienated young people. So it really was impressive. And I thought, who are these Christians? Um, so all that to say, I did leave and went back to the States. But because of my stay at Liberty, I discovered apologetics. I discovered C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and others. And so strictly, strictly reading on my own, um, I decided I was intellectually convinced it was true. And then I thought, where do I find other Christians? Because I wasn't connected to a church or anything. I really just, a friend of mine put it this way, I read my way back to God. <laughs> um, and so, well, I thought, well, I knew some Christians back at Liberty. So a year and a half later, I went back. And this, that's where I really get, sort of got grounded in Christian worldview. I stayed there for four months the second time. So that's um, <laughs> so this, this background explained why I'm so passionate about addressing young people who have the kind of questions that I had when I was that age. Um, helping this, them to see that Christianity is not just church truth, you know, something you do on Sundays, but it's true about all of reality. It, you, men- you mentioned my, my book, Total Truth. So that's, this, that's the message of my book, Total Truth, that it it's, applies to all of reality. The problem is that the debate has shifted in our day. People are no longer asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? And so my book, Love Thy Body... Is the, the goal is to give you the tools to debunk the negative stereotypes about Christianity and to turn the tables to show that it's actually the secular worldview that is dehumanizing, that, de- that denies the value and significance of the human body. Well, here, here's where I stop and let the, let the radio host <laughs> ask me a second question. And often he or she will say, one of the most surprising things about your book is that you show that the secular view of ethics is actually driven by a low view of the human body. And this is surprising because you would think, if somebody doesn't believe in God, and if they think the physical universe is all that exists, then they would think the physical body is really important, right? But it turns out it's the opposite. And let's start with the issue where it's the most obvious. Let's start with, which is also the cutting-edge issue of our day. Let's start with transgenderism. Transgender activists themselves argue that your gender identity has nothing to do with your biological sex. It's not part that your body is not part of your authentic self. A BBC, a BBC documentary says that the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body, at war. And of course, in that war, it's the mind that wins. There's another BBC documentary that addresses teenagers. Um, a young woman says, it doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you've been born in, it's what you feel that, that defines you. So your body has been reduced to a meat skeleton. Jessica Savano is a male-to-female transsexual who created a Kickstarter page for a documentary to be titled, I Am Not My Body. Well, that title says it all. The body is not part of your authentic self. Kids down to kindergarten are being estranged from their own body. Did some of you see the Blue's Clues? Yeah. Blue's Clues essentially was telling young people that your biology gives no clues to your identity. 
So children are coming home from school these days saying, my teacher said just because you have girl parts doesn't mean you're a girl. Just because you have boy parts doesn't mean you're a boy. The trend is even reaching down to newborns with gender-neutral parenting. Have you heard that term, gender-neutral parenting? Yeah, I was surprised even my young students have heard this. It's, you know, older people haven't always heard it, <laughs> but my students have. Uh, there's a Facebook page for gender-neutral parenting, and it says, point blank, there is no such thing as biological sex. Sure, Peter, people have uh, bodies, chromosomes, and genitals, but calling this sex is a social construction rather than a biological fact. So where is this biology n- denial coming from? It's coming from a postmodern worldview that started in gender studies courses on college campuses. And postmodern thinkers say their goal is to denaturalize gender. Some of you know Judith Butler. She's sort of a leading edge person. That's, that's her favorite term. I want to denaturalize gender. Which means what? Which means to deny that it has any grounding in nature. So the result is a radically fragmented, fractured, divided view of what it means to be a human being. And so philosophers sometimes illustrate the divide using the metaphor of two stories in a building, where your gender is so separate from your biology that it can contradict your biological identity. Do you recognize this little diagram? (laughs) Your mom was telling me that you read Total Truth recently. And so the diagram, you'll see the same division that I write about in Total Truth is now showing up in the in gender issues. So how should Christians respond to the claims of the transgender movement? We should ask, why accept such an extreme devaluation of the body? Today we're seeing a surge of detransitioners, that is people who are deciding they made a mistake and are recovering their original gender identity. I read an interview with an 11, a 14-year-old girl who had lived for three years as a trans boy. She had transitioned at age 11, and then at age 14 had recovered her identity as a girl. She detransitioned. And what was fascinating is that she said, the turning point came when I realized It's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. The interview came out after my book was already published, but it would have been a great quote for a book titled Love Your Body. (laughs) By the way, this is a very secular liberal website. And what it means is even secular people are starting to say that trans ideology expresses body hatred. That's a phrase that you'll start to see now. What this means is Christians have a wonderful opportunity to show that a biblical ethic is based on a high view of the human body. Our body is the handiwork of the creator. We are meant to honor it, to respect it, and to live in accord with it. So I'd better stop and let the radio host, in this case you guys, ask another question. Not surprisingly, the next question typically is about the other cutting-edge issue of our day, which is homosexuality. My answer is that, once again, to get to the core of the secular ethic is to recognize that it, too, rests on a worldview that devalues the body. Think of it this way. Even my homosexual friends agree that on the level of biology, physiology, 
anatomy, chromosomes, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To embrace a same-sex identity, then, is to contradict our design. It's to say, why should my body inform my identity? Why should my biological sex as male or female have any say in my moral choices? We have to help people to realize that this is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. It pits the mind against the body and says it's only the mind and feelings that count. So again, the postmodern worldview expresses a division that devalues the body. To use our metaphor of two stories in a building again, the body is in the lower story, while the mind and emotions are in the upper story, and they can override your biological identity. And again, Christians' response should be, why accept such a demeaning view of the body. The Christian ethic is holistic. Our mind and emotions are meant to be in tune with our body, to be in harmony with our biological sex. Uh, my book, Love Thy Body, is full of personal stories. It's not just, you know, moral reasoning. Lots and lots of anecdotes. Um, and, and this is one of my favorite. It starts, it's the beginning of the chapter on homosexuality, and it's about a young man named Sean. Um, who um, he grew up exclusively attracted to other men, but today he is married to a woman and has three children. And the interesting thing about Sean's story is that he grew up in a gay-affirming family and attended a gay-affirming church. So his change was not driven by guilt or shame. He didn't think there was anything wrong with homosexuality. And this is unusual, you know, that the typical notion is, oh, you, you know, you drive my self-loathing. You know, no, for him, it was not that at all. So what changed? Sean says, I realized that as a man, God's original intention for me in creation was to be able to relate sexually to a woman. And this remained true quite irrespective of whatever feelings I might have. So he did not try to change his feelings directly, which rarely works. Instead, he says, my goal, whoops, whoops, <laughs> my goal was to acknowledge what I already had, a male body, as a good gift from God. And eventually my feelings started to follow suit. So in other words, he accepted his embodied existence as fundamentally good. And that's the question really at the heart of this debate. Do we live in a cosmos operating by blind material causes? Or do we live in a cosmos created by a loving creator, which is therefore intrinsically good? Time for another question. Some people argue that, wait a minute, sexual orientation is rooted in our genes, in our biology. And so homosexuals are being, are being true to their biology. What do you say to that? Well, I, the APA, the American Psychological Association, has put out a, uh, a booklet where they say there really are no conclusive, there's no conclusive evidence that sexual orientation is determined by genetic factors. In fact, research has found that about 80% of people who come out as homosexual change their sexual identity label at least once. 
to heterosexual, bisexual, queer, and so on. 80% change their sexual identity label at least once, which means sometimes it's more often. That does not sound like a trait that's biologically determined. The magazine, The New Scientist, ran an article titled, Sexuality is Fluid, It's Time to Get Past, Born That Way. In religious circles, you will sometimes hear it said that God made some people gay. God made me gay. But I met a former homosexual who had, I think, a good answer to that. He said, if God made someone gay, then God has played a cruel joke on them. He's engineered their mind and emotions for attraction to the same sex, but he's created their physiology to be in direct opposition to that attraction. So if God's original creation is good, would he create people to be torn apart by that kind of painful inner conflict? In the biblical worldview, conflict and division are the results of the fall, not of God's good creation. Okay, here's your next question. In Love Thy Body, you say that it's ultimately your view of science or nature that drives your ethics. What's the connection? Because our bodies are part of nature. So the liberal secular ethic actually derives from the theory that nature is the product of mindless, purposeless forces. And therefore, the body has no intrinsic purpose. And the mind is free to use it any way it wants. In fact, that's exactly how homosexuality is defended by an outspoken lesbian named Camille Paglia. Some of you know Camille Paglia. She's somewhat known in Christian, she's known in Christian circles because she's a bit of an iconoclastic feminist. Um, she says, uh, she, she counters the postmodern idea that sex is just a social construction. No, 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 she says. Nature made us male and female. Or in her words, our sexual bodies are designed for reproduction. Designed. (laughs) Get that? Designed for reproduction. Well, then how does she defend being a lesbian? She says, well, why not defy nature? After all, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So do you see the logic? If our bodies are products of mindless, purposeless forces, then they have no intrinsic purpose that we are morally obligated to respect. They give no clue to our identity. They convey no no moral message. We may do with them as we see fit. By contrast, a Christian worldview says God designed the world for a purpose. It's evident to observation that living things are structured for purposes. Eyes are for seeing, ears are for hearing, fins are for swimming, wings are for flying. The development of the entire entire organism is directed by an inbuilt genetic plan or blueprint. So science itself gives evidence that nature exhibits a design, a plan, an order, a purpose. And what Christians are saying is that when we live in harmony with that purpose, we will be happier and healthier and more fulfilled. In my book, I tell uh, the story of a young woman named Jean who lived as a lesbian for many years, uh, but now is married and has two children. And she says, I, want, I finally came to trust 
that God had made me female for a reason. And I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the Creator's design. Notice that really positive language. Again, she's not driven by shame and guilt or self-loathing. I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the Creator's design. So Christians are making the positive case that biblical morality honors the body. The biological correspondence between male and female is not some evolutionary accident. It's part of the original creation that God pronounced very good. Okay, next question. We're on number seven, if you're counting. Um, The radio host will say, um, in Love Thy Body, one of the most surprising things you say is that the same worldview underlies the life issues like abortion and euthanasia. What's the connection? Once again, these issues also rest on a worldview that denigrates or devalues the body. Let's start with abortion. And it's easier to see uh, if we start with an example. A few years ago, an article appeared by a British broadcaster who said she had always been proudly pro-choice until she became pregnant with her own baby. And then she began to struggle. She writes, I was calling the life inside me a baby because I wanted it. But if I hadn't wanted it, I would think of it as just a group of cells that it was okay to kill. To her credit, she realized that that didn't make sense. A fetus doesn't become a baby just because somebody wants it. So she began to research the subject, and she eventually reached this conclusion. She said, in terms of science, I have to agree that life begins at conception. But in terms of moral rights... Perhaps the fact of life is not what's important. It's whether that life has started, has grown enough to start becoming a person. So what's happened here to the concept of the human being? Again, it's been split. It's been fragmented, divided. If you can be a human at one point, but not a person until sometime later, then clearly these are two different things. Again, it is a radically divided dualistic view of what it means to be a human being so we can use our two-story diagram again. In the lower story, most professional bioethicists today agree that life begins at conception. Ordinary people don't all know that, but among professional bioethicists, you pretty much don't find anyone who doesn't agree that life begins at conception. The evidence from from science, from genetics and DNA, is just too strong to deny it. Just read any embryology textbook. So how do they get around the science? They argue that merely being human is not enough to qualify for legal protection or moral status. The fetus has to earn the right to life by becoming a person, which is typically defined in terms of mental abilities, a certain level of self-awareness, cognitive functioning, and so on. So what secular bioethicists are saying is that even though the fetus is human, it is nothing more than a disposable piece of matter. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be used for research and experiments. It can be tinkered with genetically. It can be picked through for sellable body parts, like Planned Parenthood does, and then tossed out with the other medical waste. And that's exactly the language used in medical journals. They refer to the aborted baby as medical waste. 
So what this means is that being human is no longer enough for human rights. And this is actually called personhood theory, the title here. And what's the most obvious problem with it? No one can agree on how to define personhood. <laughs> right? If you, once you detach it from biology, how do you decide what qualifies, what, what uh, characterizes a person? So a lot of people will say, well, the, the fetus does become a person sometime before birth. But there are people who say, no, it's not, it doesn't become a person until after birth. The uh, two scientists who discovered DNA, um, Crick and Watson, have both publicly said um, we should give the newborn baby three days of genetic testing before deciding it's a person and has a right to life. The idea being that some birth defects don't show up until after birth. Peter Singer, as an ethics professor at Princeton University, he says even three years of age is a, a gray area. How much cognitive functioning does a toddler have? So the lesson is that when the concept of personhood is separated from science, it becomes arbitrary. There's no objective criteria. And every bioethicist ends up drawing the line at a different place, depending on their own private views and values, their own personal preferences. There's nothing objective about it. Or even their own religion. Listen to what a Yale University professor wrote in the New York Times. The question, uh, abortion is not really a question about life in any biological sense. It's instead asking about the magical moment at which a cluster of cells becomes more than a mere physical thing. It is a question about the soul. So who's bringing religion into the public square? It's time to turn the tables. When personhood is rooted in biology, then we have a marker of personhood that is objective and empirically testable, something we can identify scientifically. So to be pro-science is to be pro-life. In most interviews, the next question is, okay, what about euthanasia? And you can see probably that it's just the reverse. It's the same logic in reverse. You know, if... A fetus doesn't become a person until it reaches a certain level of cognitive functioning. What happens if you lose that level of cognitive functioning? Then you are no longer a person. Uh, bioethicists will sometimes use the language, you are only a body. Only a body. And at that point, you can, you can, you're, you can be unplugged. <laughs> your treatment withheld. Your food and water discontinued. And your organs harvested. So you see, once again, they acknowledge that you still have a human being here, but being human is not enough to qualify anymore for human rights. I was once invited to appear on an, an NPR program in San Francisco, and I thought that might be a challenging audience. <laughs> and they, uh, the producer did a pre-program interview, and he asked me uh, what, what I thought about something like abortion. And he said, most people say abortion's okay until the fetus becomes a person. And I said, the, ver the very way you phrased that carries a lot of philosophical baggage. It implies that there's a difference between the body and the person. So it's implying that the, that the body has no intrinsic value of its own. It's dispensable. In contrast, the pro-life vision is holistic. It says the body is an integral part of who we are. It shares in the dignity of the whole person. The um, producer didn't have an answer to that. 
So I kept going. I said, the secular view is exclusive, right? It says some people don't measure up. They don't make the cut. They don't qualify for the status of personhood. The pro-life position is inclusive. It says, if you're a member of the human race, you're in. You count. Every human is a person. A few days later, I got a phone call, and they said, well, we've decided to cancel this interview. (laughs) Um, uh, I think liberal people sometimes don't realize how illiberal (laughs) they can be. Okay, Okay, now you're trying to ask a question. So now you say, address something that virtually all young people are facing today, the hookup culture. How do you offer a worldview approach to sexuality? The key to understanding the hookup culture is that it's another expression of this divided concept of the human being. It rests on the assumption that sex can be purely physical, cut off from the whole person, without, without any hint of love or commitment. Young people know the script all too well. In, in my book, Love Thy Body, I include several poignant quotes from college students like Alicia, who says, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body. You make yourself emotionally invulnerable. Uh, A a college student interviewed in Rolling Stone magazine said, wait, I think I skipped one. (gasps) (laughs) Um, <laughs> so they, huh? Somehow I did lose a uh, lo- I did lose a slide. So I'll just read it to you. There's a slide. Uh, this was a um, interv- a college student interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine, uh, who said, "Oh, actually, wait a minute." <laughs> How'd that happen? (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, this is it. Well, we'll we'll stick with this one, okay? (laughs) Um, the, The mistake people make is they assume there are two very distinct elements in a relationship, one emotional and one sexual. And they pretend like there are clean lines between them. Do you see how she's verbally describing that fragmented, fractured view? That, that uh, you know, the emotional relationship is completely separate from the physical relationship. Now, critics of the hookup culture, which would include a lot of Christians, would say, oh, it gives sex too much importance. But in reality, it gives sex too little importance. To, to quote another Rolling Stone article, a young man said, uh, by the way, this was a young drummer in Austin, Texas, said, sex is just a piece of body touching another piece of body. It is existentially meaningless. So the hookup mentality expresses a worldview that says your body can be treated as purely physical, driven by physical imp- impulses and instincts. No wonder it's creating a trail of wounded people and things like the Me Too movement. People are trying to live out a secularist ethic that does not fit who they truly are. 
Even science is showing the interconnection of body and person with the discovery that sexual activity releases hormones like oxytocin and vasopressin. These are hormones that create a sense of attachment. So a UCLA psychiatrist says, you might say we were designed to bond. Designed to bond. (laughs) The Christian ethic is incarnational. What you do with your body is meant to express and to be in harmony with who you are as a whole person. And that's why, that's why in a biblical worldview, the most complete and intimate physical union is meant to express the most complete and intimate union of the whole person in the whole life commitment of marriage. Okay, now the, the uh, interviewer says, let's get practical. What do we do if someone in our family or church or Christian school identifies as gay or trans? First, we can be proactive. Yes. We need to stand against public schools and the media that are indoctrinating children, who, and especially those who don't fit gender stereotypes. Because studies find that the strongest correlation of both same-sex orientation and transgender identity far stronger than any genetic link is simply children who are gender nonconforming. I will give you just one quote from the, the literature on this. Children who grow up to be non-heterosexual are substantially more gender nonconforming than children who grew up to be heterosexual, a, fi- <clears throat> a finding that has been consistently and repeatedly replicated. So today these children are under enormous pressure to identify as gay or trans or at least non-binary. I have read in the news about there are schools where 50% of the students identify as non-binary. You know, that's, a, that's the safest position. Right? Uh, nobody wants to be a boring old heterosexual today. <laughs> uh, in Love Thy Body, I tell, I tell the story of Brandon. Not, not his real name. Brandon suffered from gender dysphoria from a very young age. True gender dysphoria, by the way, does usually start at a very young age. Before he was even walking, his babysitter told his mother, he's too, he's too good to be a boy, by which she meant he's gentle, quiet, compliant, sweet-natured, the things that we sort of stereotypically associate with girls. When he was in preschool and his mother picked him up, every day he was playing with the little girls, not the little boys. By elementary school, he was coming to his parents repeatedly, weeping and saying, I don't fit in anywhere. You know, I, don't, I feel the, And here's what he put, uh, a direct quote. I feel the way girls do. I'm interested in things girls are. God should have made me a girl. By age 14, he was scouring the internet for, for information on sex reassignment surgery. So what did his parents do? First, they made sure he knew they loved him just the way he was. They did not try to change him. In seminary, I had a a friend who was a former homosexual, and he said, when I was young, I loved music and poetry. And my dad was baffled. He kept trying to toughen me up by pushing me into sports and other things that are more traditionally masculine. Brandon's parents did not do that. They didn't push him They didn't pressure him to be different. They said it is perfectly acceptable to be a gentle, emotional, relational boy. 
It did not mean, it does not mean you're really a girl. They told him God may have gifted him for one of the caring professions like psychologist, counselor, healthcare worker. Of course, in the same way, it's perfectly acceptable for a girl to be non-gender conforming, to be, you know, take charge, rational, assertive. His parents' favorite line, which they said over and over again, was, it's not you that's wrong, it's the stereotypes that are wrong. In the New Testament, the gifts of the Spirit are not divided by sex. Prophecy and teaching are not masculine, as we might think. Mercy and service are not feminine. The Spirit distributes them individually as he determines. And of course, the greatest man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, described himself as gentle and humble in heart. Eventually, Brandon came to accept that it is scientifically impossible to change your sex. He was in his early 20s, by the way. Gender dysphoria is, is, is very intractable. You have to be willing to stand alongside someone for a long time. In his early 20s, he finally said to me, I realize that surgery, surgery would not give me what I want. It would not make me a girl. There's a very popular TED Talk. Have, have any of you seen this one? Um, it's called His, Hers, His, Her uh, Healthcare. But the most famous line is, every cell has a sex. It's by a cardiologist. And her point is, you can't, if every cell has a sex, obviously you cannot change every cell in your body. Today, many states and, and municipalities have passed laws making it illegal to do anything but instantly affirm young people in whatever, whatever their gender feelings are. Schools are allowing young people to change their name, change their pronouns, change their clothes at school without informing their parents. Um, there's a video just on TikTok yesterday <laughs> um, of a, a school administrator saying, we've, we've, we've got the uh, changing closet. We ha- Did you see the changing closet? <laughs> uh, they set up a special closet for young people to change their clothes without telling their parents so that they can identify at school. That's why, it's up, that's why it's up to us, you and I. Brandon's parents had to really fight for him. And we need to fight for our family members or friends or students who are struggling to find their God-given identity. In a culture that tells them all identities are up for grabs, that there are no signposts, that even their biological sex does not give them a clue to who they are. One of my, what I have found to be one of the most um, persuasive arguments is based on environmentalism. This was a bit of a surprise. In both with Christian and non-Christian audiences, um, you say, environmentalism, transgenderism, you know, what's the connection? What we have discovered from the, in the environmental movement is that to avoid pollution and ecological disasters, we need to respect the structure of nature. When we intervene, we need to work with the natural order, not against it. And in the same way, what Christians are saying is that we should respect our own biological identity, that there is purpose in nature. Your feelings can change, and they often do. But the body is a physical fact that does not change. So it makes sense to treat it as a reliable marker of gender identity. 
I actually um, lost another slide. So let me just give you this one verbally because I feel I think I, I want to make sure we cover this. Um, maybe it'll show up later. <laughs> maybe it got out of order. But I just want to make sure before we leave transgenderism. There was a, the first study ever done on transgenderism was done at Brown University. Some of you are familiar with this study. It was done by Lisa Littman. And um, what she found was that almost 63% of young... And this was girls, because right now the number of people coming out as transgender is primarily girls. If you look at a... An, when I have more time, I give these um, graphs. If you look at the graph of young girls uh, coming out as transgender, the graph goes like this and then like this. <laughs> it's a steep, steep cliff. To, um, in, in Britain, where they have um, state-run health care, and so they can track it better, it's, it's gone up 4,000% in the last 10 years. So the study found that these, these young girls were diagnosed, 63% were diagnosed with at least one mental health disorder, with at least one mental health disorder prior to their onset of their gender dysphoria. I emphasize the word diagnosed. Most teenagers have some anxiety and depression. (laughs) But these were young people who were severe enough that they'd already been taken to a a counselor, a a psychologist, and been diagnosed. So uh, things like anxiety, depression, ADHD, OCD, self-harm, things like cutting, eating disorders, bipolar, and autism. The most, uh, the most common correlate is autism. And that's been the, sa- the, case, the case for a long time. Nobody's quite sure. Um, yeah, it's, uh, back when transsexualism was primarily a male phenomenon, it, it was also correlated with autism. So all this, all this is to say, these are very troubled kids. These are very fragile kids. So when they show up in your family, in your uh, church, in your, in your schools, keep that in mind, that these are very... Um, these are troubled kids who need a lot of love. I'll say, so strategy number, that was strategy number one. (laughs) Um, Strategy number two, make allies. Oh, make allies. (laughs) There are are a lot of feminists who are concerned about the transgender movement. Why? Because, well, you know, you guys are keeping up on the news. You know that males males who claim a a female identity are taking over women's sports, um, are in women's prisons, are in women's are in rape shelters for women, um, are being in, in, in Britain. They had a special um, shortlist of women for uh, political positions. You know, they'd come up with a list of people so that you could easily find qualified women for positions in government. Um, the, the leader of that group, the, I don't remember what the title was, but the leader of that group... Uh, a transgender person was brought in so someone who is biologically male was brought in he immediately shortlisted all transgender people so this list of women <laughs> short list of women for government positions are now all biologically male so all that to say many feminists are very concerned because to protect women's rights we must be able to say what a woman is if anyone with any biology can claim to be a woman, then what does the word mean? If sex 
is a social construction, then it becomes impossible to argue for rights based on the sheer fact of being biologically female. And of course, we cannot legally protect a category of people if we cannot identify that category. So I happen to be in a group that... uh, (laughs) I'm in a group called Hands Across the Aisle. You can Google it. Hands Across the Aisle. um, But we have a, a public group and then a private. I'm in the private group of conservative Christian women and radically liberal, leftist, socialist, lesbian women. (laughs) And it's been great. So (laughs) we're writing op-ed pieces together. We're working for legislation together. Um, We're working together. We've made allies on this issue. It's been fascinating. And it's been great for them to discover conservatives aren't all monsters. <laughs> it's, um, oh, and, and here's what else. Uh, this, uh, you know, they, don't get, they cannot get um, published anymore in, their leftist, in leftist publications. The place, these, are, these are leading feminists who used to get published in leading outlets. They, they, their material is not accepted anymore. You know where they get published? The Christian Post. <laughs> The Federalist, just some of you know the Federalist. <laughs> the public interest, uh, you know, the public, the public discourse, which is, um, th- these are all conservative outlets. And, and some of their uh, liberal friends will criticize them for that. You know, you're hanging out with the religious right. You're, you're, you're traitors. And they say, well, my own people won't publish me anymore. <laughs> the, the religious right, yeah, these religious right publications are the only place that will give me a platform. So it's been a great... It's been a great way for making friends across, across the aisle. <laughs> so, third strategy. Use positive language. This is one of the main um, takeaway points from my book, Love Thy Body. We are so used to treating these issues negatively, right? Um, it's wrong. It's a sin. Don't do it. It's against the Bible. And there's something wrong with you, <laughs> That's the message that Christians often give. And in Love Thy Body, again and again, I try to show people, use language like honor your body, respect your body, live in tune with your body, live in harmony with the creator's design. So by using this positive language, we can reach out to people, you know, and this will grab their hearts. Negative language doesn't. One of the first uh, books on transgenderism that came out, it, in fact, I think it was the book by a Christian that came out. Um, this, I won't name names, but this person had obviously never talked to a transgender person. <laughs> and his message was, they're rebelling against God. You know, they're rebelling against their God-given identity. And I thought, that's not going to fly. That's not going to grab their hearts. <laughs> you know, yeah, anyway, you get the point. <laughs> so, uh, in a recent survey, have you seen this one? This was a recent survey done by, I think it was done by Barna. Just under 30% of Christian millennials identify as LGBTQ. 30% of Christian millennials. So we need to craft the language that will reach out to them. What is the main barrier that keeps Christians from crafting this positive message? It's that Christians also hold a divided, dualistic worldview. What do we call it? We call it the sacred-secular split, right? That language is familiar. 
it's basically the same, the, the Christian version of the divided concept. Uh, one of my students put it this way. She said, growing up in church, I was always taught body, no, spirit good, body bad. And when I say that in my lectures, people all go, yeah, that sort of summarizes the message I got in church growing up. And the problem is, you see, that Christians have lost touch with our own heritage. The early church was born into an ancient Greek and Roman culture that devalued the material world, just like modern secularism uh, does, though for very different reasons. The early church faced philosophies like Platonism and Gnosticism. So, some of you studied Gnosticism. You know, a lot of the New Testament books are written against Gnosticism. Manichaeism. Augustine was a Manichae. All of these isms taught that the, that the material world is uh, the, the realm of evil and corruption, death, de- death, decay, and destruction. Gnosticism even taught that there are um, several levels of deity and that this material world was created by an, uh, the lowest level deity who was actually an evil god. After all, no self-respecting god would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. Gnosticism denigrated the body as the prison house of the soul. And the goal of salvation was to escape the physical realm, to leave it behind. In this historical context, Christianity was nothing short of revolutionary. It taught that the material universe was created by the supreme deity, not a low level, the, the supreme deity who was a good God, and therefore it is intrinsically good. And the, yes, it's fallen now, but that does not negate its original intrinsic goodness. But Christianity's greatest scandal at the time was its claim that that same supreme deity had entered into the physical world and taken on a body. The incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And what's more, when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, we might say he did escape the body as uh, the prison house of the soul, as Gnosticism thought we should aspire to do. But what did he do then? He came back (laughs) in a physical body, a bodily resurrection. To the Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. This was regress. Who would want to come back to the realm of the body? So the whole idea of a physical resurrection was utter foolishness to the Greeks, as Paul says. And what will, what will happen at the end of time? God's not going to scrap the material universe as if he made a mistake the first time around. You know, Oops, let's try something else. He's going to restore it and renew it and create a new heavens and a new earth so that the Apostles' Creed affirms the resurrection of the body. This is an astonishingly high view of the physical world. There is nothing like it in any other religion or philosophy. We should, out, we should be communicating a Christian worldview with, with utter enthusiasm. Like, guys... Look at this. There's no other philosophy that affirms you and who you are. You know, the whole person, not just your mind and emotions, but the whole person, including your body. Of course, people are more than their biology, but since that's what's under attack, that's what we need to defend. And I'll end with, with a story. There's a woman named Laura, Laura Perry. 
and she transitioned to male and successfully passed as a man for 10 years. Then she converted to Christianity. And at first she thought she could continue living as a man. She said, I aspired to be a real man of God. Uh, One day when she was praying, she seemed to hear God say to her, you cannot claim to love me and yet reject my creation. So this is a positive case that Christians need to make, is that biblical morality is based on loving God's creation. The Christian worldview is pro-science, it's pro-reality, it's pro-truth, and it's pro-creation. Thank you very much. I'm Brian. Hi, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) We have a lot of questions. Oh, good. Uh, But uh, I'm going to start with with this one. Um, Number 34. (laughs) Um, Do our sexes have practical implications for how we live other than our sexual desires? Oh, what do you mean? (laughs) So our identity is male and female. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, what, what implications of our maleness or femaleness uh, sh- should we? So, maybe another way to another tact at the question is: How do we differentiate between, say, sexual stereotypes? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. versus something that's intrinsically a part of our nature. Yeah, that's a good question um, because um, I, I think a lot of the trans, a lot of people are, are drawn into transgenderism because they reject the stereotypes. They reject gender stereotypes, and. So Brandon, let's, let's, let me give you the, exa- the example of the young boy I mentioned. Um, well, Brandon was obviously very non-gender conforming. <laughs> and it was very difficult for him. He did not fit into most you know, male friend groups, um, even though he was homeschooled. So he wasn't in the public school system. Even, uh, even among homeschooling students, he said, the boys, t- the boys talk about sports. <laughs> And their favorite rock band. <laughs> and he wasn't interested in those things. He said, I'm interested in feelings. I want to talk about what girls talk about. I'm interested in, you know, your inner emotions and, your re- and, and relationships. Um, and, and so it was very difficult for him. Uh, and he, do you know what he told me? He said, the, the, the places where the stereotypes are the strongest are in Christian circles. Are in churches. Um, and he... Uh, attended a Christian college for a while, and a group of boys decided to start a Christian manhood group. Well, the guy who started it was from a military family, so you can, <laughs> you can kind of guess what, how he defined Christian manhood. And um, it, it, my son was, was, um, was totally alienated. At any rate, here's, what, here's where I've come down on the stereotypes. I'm writing a book right now, a little preview here. I'm writing a book on toxic masculinity, <laughs> which means I'm being forced to go through these stereotypes very carefully. <laughs> um, and I do think that it's primarily bi- biological. I think the primary difference is just, you know, women have babies, men are taller and stronger, um, and therefore end up in most cultures, virtually all cultures around the world, 
uh, men end up being the protectors and providers. They're bigger, stronger, faster. Um, and so I think it's primarily biological. Now, it is true that we also have hormones, and hormones do affect our psychology. So women do have more um, estrogen, progesterone, and oxytocin, and these are the bonding hormones. So in addition to having children, women are more likely to have the psychology that tends towards taking care of young children. Um, Men have testosterone. Testosterone makes men more aggressive, more assertive, more active, more more physically active. Um, And so these are not bad traits. This is what I have to argue in toxic... In a book on toxic masculinity, I have to argue, these are not bad traits. (laughs) Um, We all benefit from men who who, who, who are protectors, who are leaders, who protect the innocent, who know that God has given them their strength not to do what they want, and certainly not to dominate others, but to protect those they love, to provide for those who they love. Um, you know, I, start, I actually start the book with an anecdote about a, sh- a shooting, a mass shooting. This happened, this happened in Colorado somewhere. Come to think of it, you guys might remember it. Um, uh, where the, the, sh- the shooter... Um, <laughs> The shooter was former Marine, divorced, living in his mother's basement. Um, and, uh, and, and when he came in and started shooting, it was in, in a, a, a nightclub. And as he started shooting people, a young man who turned out to be a Christian gathered a bunch of people, got them under the pool tables where they would be protected. Do, do some of you remember this story? Um, and then as when the shooter stopped to reload... He broke a back window, used a bar, bar stool to break a back window and started shepherding people out. And so, in a sense, that was a, a really good anecdote showing one man used his masculine strength to kill people. The other man used his masculine strength to protect people and get them out of danger. So, so everyone knows that masculine strength can be a good thing, but... We're fallen, we live in a fallen world, people are sinners. So the very strengths that men have can also be turned to negatives. To, to negatives. So, so the answer, that's, an, that's a long answer. <laughs> but, so I'll summarize by saying, yes, I do think that some of the differences, there are differences between men and women. Um, but I do think that we have to be very careful with gender stereotypes because it's driving young people away from the church. Uh, what sort of correlation do you see in the public acceptance of the secular devaluation of the body and the rise of virtual digital world, <laughs> living their lives online? Yeah, that's, that's good. I, I don't go that far in my book, but I do agree. Um, it, it, what's been interesting about Love Thy Body is that I hear from so many people who are applying it to places that I, that I didn't go in the book, since I wanted to focus on really the, you know, the big cutting-edge issues. But I get people talking about that. You know, they're living in their virtual world. I get, I get people coming up to me you know, after I speak at conferences and saying, um, eating disorders. Um, one of my graduate students, in fact, has, has a teenage daughter whose eating disorder was so severe that she was hospitalized. And she said, I just didn't know. The graduate student, her mother, said, I just didn't know that I should be affirming her, teaching her to to love her body, to affirm who she is physically. 
And she sat down with her teenage daughter and went through, love thy body, went through the book, line by line, (laughs) to help train her in thinking, you know, my body is valuable, God made it, I should respect and honor my body. I hear from people who are sexually abused and who therefore came to hate their body, right? Who have come up to me after a conference and said, you know, your book is helping me, you know, recover a sense of, of the you know, value of my body to kind of overcome the, the body hatred I had developed. A woman who had um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and who's, who's become fairly crippled by it. And she said, I had, I had, come, to, I had uh, come to deal with this by saying, I am not my body. <laughs> you know, that's how I dealt with the fact that my body was letting me down, right? And then I read your book. <laughs> okay, that's not the right way to deal with it. <laughs> um, so again, I, I have found that there's a whole host of issues that have to do with the body that I, I don't actually cover in the book, but I, I appreciate bringing up other ways that can be applied. Um, we had a number of questions about any wisdom you could offer on uh, in, in workplaces where preferred pronouns are being demanded. Um, how do you navigate that as a Christian? Yeah, I, since I go to a Christian school, I don't face that directly. I, I mean, I teach. Go to. I teach at a Christian school. <laughs> um, I don't deal with it directly. So I, I, I have to answer this somewhat indirectly. I have had students who, who have had to deal with it in the workplace. And so recently one of my grad students said, so she's a woman, she now identifies as a man, but we're such good friends that I just told her, I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, I can't say something I think is false. Um, and they were such good friends that she accepted it. Now, if you're not good friends, she might not. But they were good enough friends that in the workplace, she accepted the fact that she, he would not use her uh, preferred pronouns. She, he would not refer to her, her as a male. So that's good. If you have relationships like that, <laughs> um, I think that's the best route to go. It's, but, but what about when you don't have relationships? Um, then it's, it's a, a tough call. There are, and right now I'm not sure if, if Christians have really figured this out. Because some people will say, well, it's a matter of courtesy to use somebody's preferred pronouns. Even Jordan Peterson, <laughs> when, when he was asked, um, he was in an interview, and there was a woman, excuse me, the, a transgender woman who was male, but who had gone through all the, who had gone through all the surgeries, you know, because it's not just, um, it's not just cutting off your breasts, it's not just genitals, you know, it's it's facial feminization surgery, it's. Um, it's Adam's apple shaving. You know, there's, there's a whole host. There's, um, what's the word for taking out your hairs? Depolization. What's the word? When you take, when you weave. <laughs> <laughs> no, you. <laughs> That's a word for taking out hair. <laughs> There's a whole host. <laughs> there's a whole host of surgeries. Um, if, which, by the way, is another argument in favor of, 
if it's, if you have to go through multiple surgeries to appear to be the opposite sex, then you know how is it your natural, authentic self? You know, it's obviously not your authentic self. It's it's an artificial self. It's created by modern medicine. Um, but even so, back to Jordan Peterson. Even Jordan Peterson, when he f- was face to face in an interview with someone who looked very feminine, and the interviewer said. You know, what would you call her? What would you call this person? And he said, I'd call her she. Because she does. She complete, the person completely looked like a she and functioned as a she. So, you know, even Jordan Peterson, who's made, you know, made his name <laughs> by countering, um, he said, the, um, you know, he's made, he made, became famous when he opposed the Canadian law that's, that enforced it from government. He said, my concern is free speech. Coerced speech is really my issue. But whether you in your personal life um, think that it's appropriate, you know, it's a courtesy to address someone by their preferred pronoun, he said, yeah, I would. So right now I'm not sure that Christians have really come down on figuring out what to do. I personally, I'm with my graduate student. I can't say something I think is false. As soon as you are, as soon as you say something that you believe is false, it tears down your moral core. That's why the coerced speech is so dangerous. That's what the Soviet Union did, right? You had to go out and, you know, and say Stalin was a wonderful guy, (laughs) even when you didn't believe it. And that's one way they tore people down internally, is by forcing them to affirm things that they did not believe. And so I think uh, a coerced speech, you know, in terms of gender pronouns, is the same thing. It's, It's certainly... Peterson is right when he says coerced speech is a whole different issue because that's the government saying you must say things, you must affirm things you believe are false, which destroys your moral integrity. Um, you touched on it earlier, and I just would love to create space for you to explore this a little bit. The, um, the, the separation of the upper story and lower, lower story has been such a helpful framework for thinking through all kinds of different issues. Um, and uh, you, you started to address a little bit of the ways that that divide has invaded the church. I'd love for you to think more, talk more about that, and where have you seen that specifically um, in terms of practical ministry, how churches worship, all those kinds of things. Well, can, let me Take start. On us a little bit. <laughs> let me start by how it uh, affects the secular world, because um, when I am in media interviews, often they actually ask me that. Um, they often, if I start straight with the moral issues, they say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Tell us first about how the concept of truth got split. <laughs> um, because that's kind of, that precedes it, right? Um, logically. It, in my book, Total Truth, is how the concept of truth itself got split. You know, how did this split happen in the first place? Um, in most cultures, people have known that there's a natural order and there's a moral slash spiritual order, right? And they have thought that they cohered into a single cosmic system, right? There's one cosmos that encompasses both the natural order and the moral order. With the, with the rise of modern science, many people began to say, no, 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 the only reliable form of knowledge is what we know by science, empirically testable facts, well, what happens then to spiritual and moral truths? If you can't, you, you can't stuff them into a test tube or study them under a microscope. So many people in the West began to say, well, they're not really truths then. They don't qualify as truth. 
they're merely personal preference. They're your subjective feelings. You know, what arises from your personal experience. And so that's the origin of the, the split. So the lower story was uh, scientific facts and the things like morality and religion and spirituality got tossed in sort of into, the up, into the upper story, the, into the sort of attic <laughs> where they could be, that's, that's fine for you to believe in if it makes, if it makes you feel better. <laughs> but don't bring it into the public square because in the public square we talk about only what's objectively true. And so Christianity was sort of shoved, therefore, to, you know, to the margins of the intellectual world, you know, of, of, of society. And we, we encounter it all the time when we um, try to bring a Christian perspective into a topic like education, right? Or a topic like healthcare or um, how you run your business. People are like, wait a minute, that's your personal beliefs. That doesn't belong in the public square. We get pushed back. So, uh, and here's how we, here's where you'll really recognize it. When people say, um, don't bring your values into the public square, right? Don't, um, don't impose your values on me. But nobody says, don't impose your facts on me, <laughs> right? Because facts are thought to be objective and universally valid. Everyone has to accept the facts, so that when you hear people say that, um, that's one of the ways you can tell, oh, they're in the upper story. <laughs> um, and when I, uh, so I wrote my book, Total Truth, to help people recognize this split view of truth. Um, Francis Schaeffer used to say, this is the main reason Christians have a difficult time communicating with the secular world. Because Christians have not recognized that the definition of truth itself has changed. And so when Christians say, you know, Christianity is true, the secular person hears you saying, this is what is meaningful to me. It's my subjective, private experience. And they're likely to say, well, that's nice for you. <laughs> you know, you know if, if that works for you. <laughs> um, and and in the secular world, by the way, the term is fact-value split. Uh, in secular academia, we call it the fact-value split. So the facts are the lowest story, and values are in the upper story. And when, so when Christians say, talk about defending Christian values, what does a secular person hear? We think, by values, we mean objective moral truths. The secular person hears, oh, my personal private preferences. Because the word value actually came from the verb, whatever you value, whatever is important to you. That's where the term actually came from. And so when Christians say Christian values, they're shooting themselves in the foot. They're using, they're using language that the secular person doesn't hear your message then. Um, we need to be like missionaries. This was another theme that Schaefer used a lot. He used to talk about, we need to understand secular worldviews because we are missionaries. And just like the missionary who goes off to a foreign country needs to learn the language, we need to learn the language of our culture. And they may speak English, <laughs> but they have reinterpreted a lot of terms. And value is one of the most, um, the most um, obvious one because we still, I still get students, by the way, who'll say, oh, no, we can't let them have the word values. <laughs> and I say, no, they're the ones who came up with it. <laughs> We talk about biblical truth. 
they're the ones who invented the word value. It's from Kant, if any way you want to know your, you know, your history of philosophy. <laughs> it came from Immanuel Kant. He was the first one to say, you know, we can't really know morality. We can only know our own values. Here in America, it was John Dewey in particular. John Dewey, again, he said, we can't know moral truths because all we know is what science tells us. But science can investigate what, what people value, you know, what this group values, what that group values. That can be investigated scientifically. So that we can, you know, so that qualifies as knowledge. But values themselves are just private and subjective. So all that to say, Christians have largely absorbed this, the fact value split, we, you know, from the secular world. And how does it show up in the Christian world? Um, one reason that we were so susceptible to it is because we do have a long history. Um, you know, I gave our positive history, <laughs> but we have a negative history too. <laughs> the negative history is that uh, a lot of Christians did absorb the Greek view in, in the early church. Remember I said the Greeks, the Greeks uh, Platonism, Gnosticism, Manichaeism, many Christians. The, when the early church started, it's not enough to have a theology. You have to have a philosophical vocabulary to express your theological vision to the wider world. And the philosophical vocabulary of their day was Plato, Aristotle. Um, and so, and, and, and to really be precise, Neoplatonism was the most common. Um, and Neoplatonism was a philosophy that arose in the third century that took, took Greek thought and then took bits of Eastern mysticism. So it was kind of the New Age movement of the ancient world. Because it combined secular thought with Eastern thought. And it became very influential in the Christian world. Most medieval thinkers were Neoplatonists. Uh, Christian, Neo, Christian thinkers were Neoplatonists. So as a result, the Christian church did absorb the sacred-secular split from the Greeks. I have a friend who used to... Um, Lecture, who used to work and lecture at, at Labrie. His name is Daryl Miller. Some of you may know him. But he said, Christians, Christians substitute, they took the great, the great Commission and they substituted the Greek Commission. That's a good summary, right? He said, we absorbed the, the sacred secular split from the Greeks. You don't find it in the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't have a sacred secular split. So why do we? It's not in the Bible. It's from the Greeks. So Christians, therefore, have had a history of having a negative view of, of the body, of sexuality, and so on. Um, so that's, that's why we're, still, we're, we're having a hard time recognizing it in the secular world because we do have our own version of it. Well, we are out of time. A oh. um, couple of things. If you would first give a hand of thanks to Dr. Oh. Pearcy again. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.